You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is Episode 70, covering the week of May 1st through May 5th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just a little housekeeping as usual. Don't forget that we exist on your generous tax-deductible contributions alone, so please consider making a donation to the Abbeville Institute. Helps keep the light on, lights on, helps keep this podcast going, our website, and all of our programs. Also, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or at least I should say like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on YouTube, and uh, help share our material around on social media. That will help us spread the word. Um, so you can help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Also, if you would like a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell, simply go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. Uh, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. And we'll send you a weekly, or a weekly and a daily email uh, on a variety of topics. So head on over there and do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a grand time, and of course, you can share these emails around, too, with your friends and foes, Southerners and non-Southerners alike. So uh, that would help us, again, share our, share our message, and you would be helping explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition at that point. Okay, so let's talk about what we had for the week. We had, of course, our five pieces as usual, a couple pieces focusing on Southern literature, and then uh, three that were about contemporary events. Uh, but, uh, again, all having to do with this idea of the Southern tradition, which is what the Institute is dedicated to doing. So the first piece for the week was written by Thomas McDonnell, and it was about Wendell Berry. Now, a lot of people don't know who Wendell Berry is. He's still alive. Uh, Wendell Berry is probably the leading agrarian voice in America today. Uh, when you look at agrarianism and what that is. And what we're talking about here, of course, goes back to the 1930 manifesto, I'll Take My Stand by 12 Southerners. And that really jump-started a movement among some intellectuals to look at the world in a different way. Now, uh, they were simply, when, when the 12 Southerners wrote that particular book, they were... Uh, reacting to a number of things, and primarily they're reacting to Reconstruction. And you can say, well, wait a second here. How are they reacting to Reconstruction in 1930? Because Reconstruction hadn't ended by 1930, and really it hasn't ended today. I think one of the great travesties about our understanding of, of American history, not just Southern history, but American history, <clears throat> is that we have these neat and tidy beginning and end dates. And Reconstruction is often portrayed as ending in 1877, because that's the year federal troops were withdrawn from the South. And somehow, uh, Reconstruction stopped at that point. And, of course, the other thing that's happened is that the uh, historical profession has considered the quote-unquote Dunning School to be an outdated <clears throat> and outmoded uh, historiographic look at uh, the South during Reconstruction. But again, Dunning wasn't just focusing on the South. Um, his idea was that Reconstruction was more comprehensive because he looked at things like economic Reconstruction, uh, political Reconstruction, and ways that uh, the modern Reconstruction historiographic approach does not do. Most people just focus now on the plight of former slaves after the war was over. But Dunning looked at it in a much more comprehensive manner. I remember when I was in graduate school, 
and I had a professor there who we were doing a seminar, a reading seminar. Actually, it was a writing seminar, excuse me. And uh, this professor said, he gave us a, a, a chart, and he said, look at what's happened with the interpretation of Reconstruction. It's, it's narrowed because of Eric Foner. Uh, Eric Foner at Columbia University. Everyone narrows Reconstruction. Now, you have this very you know, static look at Reconstruction. If you deviate from that, uh, as Tom Wood says, that three-by-five index card of, card of allowable opinion, well, then you, you deviate from what is uh, fashionable and acceptable in modern history. And, of course, Dunning ripped all that apart, but nobody reads Dunning anymore because they're told Dunning is just a racist and you can't read this guy. But he had a much more complex and comprehensive view about Reconstruction. And so in 1930, Reconstruction was still ongoing. Uh, it was economic Reconstruction. The South was being reconstructed uh, economically. The small farm was disappearing. The agrarian way of life was disappearing. And these Southerners recognized that, that, oh my gosh, this thing is going away. And we ran a piece by Andrew Nelson Lytle uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, looking back on that book, and he said, "This is people couldn't see it in 1930. They couldn't see that the way of life they had grown up in was going to disappear within 50 years. It was going to be gone. And I think to say it's gone entirely is a stretch, but certainly there are far fewer farmers today in the South than there ever have been. There are far fewer independent people in the South. And when you have the, uh, the interest in Wall Street replace the interest in the cotton market in major southern cities or even in small southern towns, you know that the South has been economically reconstructed. So that's what they were talking about. And of course, Barry uh, is this, uh, as, as the piece said, you know, it's Wendell Berry more than a southern Thoreau. So he's looking at Wendell Berry as greater than the transcendentalists of New England. I mean, Barry was no transcendentalist. And unfortunately, the, the modern environmental movement took on the transcendentalists as their intellectual forebearers. And that's wrong, uh, because um, the transcendentalists were a different type of environmentalists. Uh, Wendell Berry was attached to the land in a different way. He wasn't attached to the land in some theoretical tree-hugging, standing in, in the blithe air, as Thoreau, as uh, as uh, Emerson called it, looking up in the blithe air and hugging trees. Uh, that's not part of it. Uh, Barry's attachment to the land was something deeper. It was something more tangible. This is where you were from. These are where your roots were and are. Um, and it was more about community. Uh, and the relationship to nature was different. So looking at environmentalism the way the transcendentalists do is simply this individual connection, somehow uh, a metaphysical connection to nature. And of course, Southerners feel that too. I mean, you look at the earliest Southern writings when you, uh, when you talk about the colonial period. They looked at the South and America as a bountiful opportunity something that you could not just conquer, but use and be part of. Northerners looked at it with foreboding. Oh my gosh, it's this terrible place. We have to tolerate it. Now, as you get to the transcendentalists, they don't have that type of foreboding uh, you know, view of nature anymore. But they do have a different view of how they interact with the environment. 
Uh, and so, as, as uh, McDonald says, uh, this is a beautiful life struggle. A beautiful life struggle. So, I think when you read Barry, you start thinking of, uh, again, community. A tangible usage of the environment, but in a way that works well with preserving the environment. Because when that environment goes, and it's, it's, um, it's not, again, some type of communist uh, view of how we should save you know, Mother Earth. Um, it's, it's something greater than that. So when we talk about the Greens, the quote-unquote Greens, um, you know, when we look at these people who go out and we think that they're all just a bunch of you know, uh, left-wing hippies, uh, a lot of people miss the point about Barry. Uh, Barry is not that. He's not some left-wing hippie. Uh, he is a connection to these agrarians. He's a southerner, and I think that matters when you start talking about uh, this environmental movement and who Barry was and who Barry is. Uh, and McDonald says, um, Wendell Berry is the kind of man, moreover, who cannot live without some recreation art of the natural beauty he loves so deeply. deeply. That is why he is a poet. Uh, it is also why he writes a type of poetry which not only pays tribute to nature itself, but which again restores love to the origins of our most natural condition. So it's that connection with the land. Uh, and that's how Southerners saw the land. They were connected to it in different ways. Because to them, it was all about life. If you didn't have the land, you didn't have life. And of course, you would not have the Southern tradition without the land. The South being the agrarian section for longer than anywhere else. And as you get to the New South period, people would criticize that and say, well, this is, you know, this is hard. We need to embrace industrialization, these other things. And this is, of course, where the agrarians are saying, well, we're going to lose independence if we do that. You've got to have some type of the farmers are the backbone of your society. If you lose that, you lose your backbone. So when you think about agrarianism, you, you can't just go with the, with the 12 Southerners you know, who wrote, I'll take my stand. And then, of course, who owns America later on, which is forgotten but still very good. And we have, there was um, John Crow Ransom wrote a little, little book entitled Land, which was uh, full, express, full expression of his uh, economic views. And we have uh, someone who's reviewing that book at this point, so we'll have that on the website in the near future. But you have to understand these people to understand the Southern tradition. It was the continuation of that into the future. And so let me skip over to, to Wednesday's piece that gets into this idea of community, and that's a piece on uh, William Faulkner by uh, Mark Winchell, the late Mark Winchell, who was a, a great scholar, taught at Clemson University. Uh, and he reviewed uh, a book by Cleanth Brooks, who actually was one of these 12 Southerners, and the book was on the prejudices, predilections, and be firm beliefs of William Faulkner. And what he does in this particular book, and what 
Wenchel does is attach Faulkner to where he was from. You have to understand Faulkner by understanding the community. Uh, and he, he attaches Faulkner to the 12 Southerners, the agrarians again. Uh, and he says in his discussions of Faulkner and the community, uh, Brooks identifies the quality that most distinguishes the world and the South in general from what we find in the fiction of Faulkner's most gifted contemporaries. The characters of Hemingway and Fitzgerald may exist in a crowd, a random group of onlookers, or even a society, persons drawn together for mutual profit. What we do not find in their work or in much modern American fiction set outside the South is a fully functioning community, a group of people united by common likes and dislikes, aversions and enthusiasms, tastes, ways of life, and moral beliefs. Neither Faulkner nor Brooks is foolish enough to think that a community is invariably a force of good, but it is an invaluable literary resource, giving fictional characters a context within which to play out their individual dramas. Remove the community of Jefferson from A Rose for Emily, and you have only the sort of tabloid melodrama found in the supermarket checkout lines. Spinster sleeps for 40 years with boyfriend's corpse. Paradoxically, one of the fruits of true community is the right to privacy. Respect for Miss Emily's privacy allowed her literally to get away with murder. In a community, manners and customs regulate behavior. In a mere society, man's actions are constrained only by brute force, either public or private, or by the fear of force. For Faulkner, the American dream lay in the promise of true community. And again, this gets to the heart of Barry and the agrarians and understanding the Southern tradition. Community mattered. The people you were around. In my own podcast, I often call it Think Locally, Act Locally. If you, don't, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's the Brian McClanahan Show, and you can find it on my website, brianmcclanahan.com. But I call it Think Locally, Act Locally. It's that community idea. Uh, Winchell goes on, when the national media began invading his, meaning Faulkner's, privacy, he was prompted to begin a series of essays on the demise of that promise in present-day America. In a thought-provoking lecture delivered at the International Faulkner Conference in Japan, Brooks compares Faulkner's critique of contemporary American society with that of Crisper Leish, whose culture of narcissism was published 16 years after Faulkner's death. Like Leish and other cap others capable of seeing beyond their image in the pool, Faulkner knew that a man who has lost all voluntary codes of behavior is apt to be destroyed by either the Leviathan or the jungle. So again, community mattered for regulating people, not in a negative way, but through, through tradition. And this is why in the uh, Forgotten Conservatives that uh, Clyde Wilson and I wrote together, when, when Clyde wrote the essay on Faulkner, Faulkner as conservative, the left often misses that about Faulkner. He was looking to conserve that very American or, more importantly, Southern trait of community. Uh, and so when you think about the Southern tradition, you have to think about Southern literature. You have to. Literature is important. 
in the Southern tradition and understanding who Southerners are as a people. So you have Wendell Berry, the poet, the writer, the agrarian writer. You have the 12 agrarians, which were part of the Southern literary renaissance. Uh, and then you have Faulkner, again, part of that Southern literary renaissance, that, that uh, early 20th century period that was so vital to understanding what the South was and is. Uh, and of course, pe- of course, people like H.L. Mencken were very critical of you know, the New South for various reasons. And we, we did an essay on that where Mencken was actually critical of the New South because it didn't compare it to the Old South, which he loved. But I think we missed the point, and there was actually value in the New South, particularly in literature and in the study of history. And the historians that the New South was producing were very good. There were a lot of good historians in the New South period. Uh, it's just that they're often overlooked now because they had views on race that are repugnant with modern America. But they said a lot of valuable things about Southern history and Southern society. And that said, let's, that's a nice segue into Trump as historian uh, and the politically correct attacks on the South that are ongoing. Because this attack on the South is based on a misunderstanding of history. And so the first piece that deals with that is written by Ryan Walters, who was our new book review editor. We'll be seeing more of that in the upcoming uh, couple of months, starting in July. That's the target date right now. I can't promise it's going to stay that way. But starting in July, our Abbeville Review will be exclusively dedicated to book reviews. And so uh, Ryan Walters is our new book review editor, and he's heading that up. Uh, so I will say this and make the announcement here. If you want to be considered to review books, then uh, shoot shoot us an email on the website uh, and say, hey, I, I would like to review some books. And um, we can put you in the in the pool for those who would like to do that. And, and uh, maybe you could get a book and, and write a review for the Abbeville Institute. So in this particular uh, piece... Uh, Ryan gets into the idea uh, that, uh, you know, could the war have been avoided? And so Trump made a statement on Sirius XM satellite radio on Monday that, uh, one, uh, if Andrew Jackson were alive in 1861, he could have avoided the war. And uh, two, that the war is avoidable. And this is the asking the unthinkable question. Um, now, uh, Ryan Walters says uh, that... Uh, Trump, uh, Trump's has a misguided appreciation for Andrew Jackson in this way. But of course, the thing about it is that when you ask the question, could the war have been avoided? Of course it could have. Of course it could have. And so Ryan gets into this idea, and I'm not going to go through point by point. Um, I also wrote an article for this uh, because I knew Ryan was doing this, so I wrote an article and uh, for LeRockwell.com on the same issue. Uh, and let, and, uh, you know, had Ryan put it on our website, his article on our website. Uh, he points out that uh, you know, the, the war could have been avoided. Uh, and so when you think about it, when you think about this question, uh, you, you uh, realize that maybe there's more complexity to the issue than people led on. Now, of course, the attacks on Trump were fast and furious. Uh, You know, Trump didn't realize Jackson was dead for 16 years. Uh, This is the most asked question in American historiography. 
not really. Uh, when you think about could the war have been avoided, people don't ask that question anymore. People, uh, uh, I mean, they, they, they don't write about it much anymore. Uh, there was uh, Tom Fleming, not the Tom Fleming at Rockford, uh, but a, the, the historian Thomas Fleming wrote a book on this where he, he, he asked that question, and he was just completely ripped apart on Amazon for suggesting that somehow it was rhetoric, particularly northern rhetoric, that caused the war, which the South saw the North as aggressive, and they thought the only recourse was secession. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the other part of it was that, you know, uh, uh, Trump didn't mention the word slavery when he talked about this. And that begs the question, you know, why slavery? Why is slavery important uh, in, this, in this period? You can't get around the fact that slavery was a major issue in the period leading up to the war. But why was slavery a major issue in the period leading up to the war? And just a little hint of something we might be doing uh, with the Institute. We might be trying to do a video on that particular question. Um, and something that I think would be really hard-hitting and, and excellent. So that's in, that's in the planning stages. But this question of why slavery, why was slavery important in the United States from the founding period forward? And the simple answer is not for moral reasons. Most Northerners could care less about the moral implications of slavery, whether you know, slaves were um, uh, you know, the plight of slaves. What they cared about was political power and the expansion of their political economy. And the South was always a block to that. And so you bring up the slavery issue, which Westerners didn't care for slavery, and they didn't care for black Americans at all. If you can make that an issue, you're going to break that alliance between the West and the South, and you make it to where you have political ascendancy. And if you look at the early history, the cat was out of the bag uh, in the Hartford Convention of 1815, when the North, New England wanted to have a number of constitutional amendments which would have reduced the power of the South. That was the whole point, because they saw themselves as a sectional minority. But what they figured out is that if you can use the slavery issue, Westerners tend not to like slavery. If you can use that issue to your advantage, you can gain power. And so that misunderstanding of American history and what it was, I mean, sure, people believe when you say, well, the war was about slavery. Well, what immediately comes to mind is that, oh, yeah, it's a moral question of, you know, was slavery right or wrong? That wasn't the question. That wasn't the question at all. It was a question of who's going to have power in this union, the North or the South? And if you can bottle slavery up in the South and you can keep new slave states from being admitted to the union, um, the North would gain ascendancy because Western farmers liked parts of the Northern political economic agenda mainly internal improvements, railroads, for example. So that's important to understand. Now, uh, also, this, this uh, misunderstanding of history leads us to these attacks, these politically correct attacks, attacks on the South, and the first piece that deals with that on, for the week was published on Thursday by Patrick McSweeney. Patrick McSweeney worked in the uh, Nixon administration. He's given a variety of talks on the flag and, and Confederate monuments. And this piece is wonderful uh, because it's, it's a defense of what these monuments mean to American history. And by tearing them down, essentially he realizes what's actually happening here. 
He says the ultimate aim of the followers of Saul Alinsky and the allies of George Soros is to destroy the culture that produced the United States Constitution, which has survived for more than two and a quarter centuries. We will be willfully blind not to see that the attacks on our traditions are organized, focused, and destructive. The fight to preserve Confederate heritage is only a part of a much larger struggle. We should be working with other defenders of traditional culture to resist the assault of the radical left. Continuing the fight uh, independent of and separate from our natural allies will be foolhardy. In George Orwell's famous satire of the totalitarian Soviet Union, his novel Animal Farm, the character Snowball, a pig, exhorts the animals on Farmer Jones's farm with the chant, Four legs good, two legs bad. He says Snowball's chant was effective but cynical. Orwell understood that the chant served several purposes. One, it aroused the emotions of the animals. Two, it reduced everything to a simplistic formula, a thought-stopping slogan. And three, it drowned out dissenting voices. And that's exactly what's happening here with these attacks on Confederate monuments. You take one thing and you start using these slogans. Well, it's about slavery. It's about slavery. It's about slavery. And, of course, you're drowning out the other side and you're missing. It's very simple. Well, it's simple about slavery. Simple. Simple. This is just simple. No complexity. Even some people on the right are getting involved in this, you know. Uh, there was a writer at the Weekly Standard, which somehow is right-wing. I, I don't know how, but that's what they say they are. The Weekly Standard said, you know, simpletons essentially believe that slavery was the cause. M- mildly educated people say it's complex, and then, and then uh, uh, experts say it's slavery. <laughs> uh, and so what does that say? The question again is why slavery? Why was slavery so important? It wasn't a moral crusade. It was made into that later in the war through propaganda. But uh, when the war began, there was no discussion of ending slavery. That wasn't even on Lincoln's radar. So I think that, uh, you know, when, when you look at these politically correct attacks on the South, and not just that, but Western civilization is under assault here because you have to understand the first step is the Confederate monuments, but then where does it stop? I mean, are Americans going to accept then tearing down the Jefferson Memorial or the, or the Washington Monument? Of course, they were slaveholders. Are we going to rename Washington, D.C.? We've had people say the Constitution is a slaveholding document. We should get rid of that. Uh, so, you know, James Madison, slaveholder. Declaration written by a slaveholder. Let's get rid of these things. And, of course, the piece on Friday brings up that the title is New Orleans is Ground Zero. I mean, it gets into the same issue. You have these monuments being taken down by a well-organized and well-funded group of people who want to destroy Western civilization. They have a very simple slogan. It's, you know, white supremacy. We have to get rid of white supremacy. Anything that smacks of white supremacy. White supremacy reminders. And that could be anything. There's discussion now of getting rid of the Jackson statue in New Orleans. There's discussion of getting rid of anything that had to do with the city's founding because, of course, it had to do with slavery. And this is missing the entire problem with New Orleans. This, the city, the statues in New Orleans are not the problem. It's got terrible crime and 
uh, poor education. But of course, by focusing on something that's silly like this, they are able to take deflect the real problems with New Orleans. Uh, and that's that's the left's mo. Because they want they want those things. That makes people dependent on them. And so these these confederate this is a low hanging fruit in this battle of Western civilization. I mean, this is just the beginning. It is a low hanging fruit. You can take those down because a lot of Americans and I even had someone email me saying, "Yeah, I can understand that one," and maybe even Jefferson Davis. But once they go after Lee, I have to draw a line in the sand. Well, I mean, you're already conceding at that point. You're conceding. You can't do that. Uh, you know, where do you where do you, do you start renaming streets and and uh, you know schools? Of course, that's already been going on. So it's a low hanging fruit. That low-hanging fruit will be picked. You take out anything that had to do with the Confederacy because, of course, you know, the, the simple Orwellian slogan, you know, slavery, uh, you got to do it. And then then you have to get a little more nuanced. But you could make a case, well, I mean, these, these symbols, I mean, they're offensive to me. You know, Thomas Jefferson is offensive. George Washington is offensive. The Constitution is offensive. Uh, and, you know, other things. What about the U.S. flag? It could be offensive. Christianity is offensive. We have to, we have to think about these things now. Churches are offensive. So this, this era of political correctness and offense, people are offended by everything, creates a climate where these type of things can happen. Once the low-hanging fruit are picked, the other things are coming. The other things are coming. And so... We have to understand that, and this is why you have to draw a line in the sand at the beginning. You have to say, look, enough. And, of course, there is legislation in various southern states, including Louisiana, to block these things. Uh, and as uh, Gail Jarvis, who wrote the piece on Friday, Friday pointed out, uh, you know, the, the New Orleans residents are you know, scratching their head. I mean, why is this even an issue? But, of course, the political class in New Orleans and the press are all for it. It deflects the issues that are confronting New Orleans bad infrastructure, bad schools, bad crime, you know, and and people uh, are not paying attention to those things because they're worried about taking down some monument. We ran a piece last week by Boyd Cathy on the issue, which, you know, was accurate in saying, you know, people see things in different ways. You have to understand that. And these monuments are the same thing, and you can't just say it's this because other people see it a different way. And tearing down your history as... McSweeney said, this is what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. You tear down your history, you forget it. And of course, that's the point. You forget Western civilization then. And you recreate something as you go. And that's why we exist at the Abbeville Institute, to try to preserve and explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Because it's quickly disappearing. And so by listening to this podcast, you're in the vanguard, as Marx called it, or Lenin actually called it. The vanguard. We're, of course, not Leninists, but uh, we're trying to do our part to make sure that people remember uh, what's valuable in the Southern tradition. And so uh, keep thinking about that and keep doing your job, which is helping us spread the word and, and uh, listen to this podcast and, and spreading our articles on social media. Until next time, good day. Good day.